Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and as promised, here's an episode that I'm so excited about because I think that it's so needed. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend Jonathan Martin to talk about what happens when we walk away from the religious systems and communities that formed us and how we find ourselves in the midst of it. Jonathan also recently released a book called The Road Away From God, How Love Finds Us Even As We Walk Away. And while we talk about it, our conversation goes far beyond that. We talk about the tension, pain, joy, and self-discovery that we engage with as we are on this journey and on this journey together, frankly. So I hope it brings life into you as it did for both of us. I also wanted to remind everyone that we have a live event coming up on July 16th in Seattle. We will be doing a live recording on bodily autonomy with Erna Kim Hackett of Liberated Together called Your Body Is Your Own. So please look for tickets for that online and in our show notes, and we would love to see you there. Once again, say thank you so much for being on, Jonathan. It's so good to talk to you just as a friend, and I'm so excited about the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Brandy, now, um, I I promise I'm not just saying this. Um, I mean, the book, of course, just came out last week. It's not some major, like, whatever. But, you know, as with anybody, the first couple weeks, you're doing a lot of things. Uh, just randomly, and when I when I saw the request, I was like whatever, I totally, I, I really flipped out. I was like, I was so, it's such an honor to me that you would have me on because I just, I, I love your voice so much. I love your prophetic voice, just who you are and what you're doing. So it's, it's such a big deal to me to be able to have this conversation. I so look forward to it. So super honored. And it's a gift to even talk to you virtually, because I think the last time we were at, like, what, Johnny Cash's old plantation in Nashville somewhere, so I'm a little more in my element than I was last time we were chatting. (laughs) Fair enough, yes. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about your book that just released, The Road Away from God, How Love Finds Us Even As We Walk Away. But as I was reading the book, there were all of these concepts that felt really important to me for people who listen to Reclaiming My Theology to engage with as we just closed out this series on patriarchy and are going to start talking about purity culture soon. And one of the things that majorly stuck out to me is just that there's so many of us who are in this dissonant in-between space between what we thought, what used to serve us in some real way and what no longer does. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to talk today about how we might reframe and find ourselves as we step away from those places and into really, maybe not the next thing, but into the unknown. And so I'm excited to have that conversation with you. But as I always do with my guests, I want to have you introduce yourself a little bit and describe, Jonathan, what does it mean to be you? Ooh, (laughs) That's, that's a great question. What it means to be me? Well, um, my father's a Pentecostal minister, as was my grandfather, so very deep roots in that soil, and a lot of things that have been great about that in terms of a sense of wonder and uh, sort of the centrality of the spirit in all things. Um, it's also, also a lot of pain at, at this point because my own journey has taken me very different places. So I think everything from, especially kind of going, growing up in this very holiness Pentecostal context, where you have a, a very particular script of what your life is going to look like, uh, and that mine does not fit that now. So it's um, it's been interesting because I feel like it's been such a, I, I, I never, I, I really don't want to be preachy with this, but it, it actually just continues to blow me away the way these patterns of death and resurrection just work out in our lives because the um the last book i wrote was called how to survive a shipwreck came out in 2016 which was all coming out of you know a sense of um failure trauma grief loss divorce 
uh, I guess it'd be 2014. Um, so it's very interesting because I kept trying to write this book and I felt like I just, I wasn't ready because I hadn't lived far enough into the new thing. It's like, oh, I'm really, it kind of takes a long time to walk through the despair and the grief and figure out what life on the other side looks like. So all that to say in terms of what it's like to be me, it's a very interesting moment right now because I feel like there's been such a long unraveling and descent and, well, who am I now? And right now just feels like a season of just a lot of new life. Just recently got married and that's amazing. Uh, I have no kids biologically and she has four. <laughs> so that's a, <laughs> that's a very new life for me. And uh, so, yeah, right now it just, it, it feels like a really cool moment because it feels more like this is the time where not like it, this, everything's awesome, but there's just a lot of newness and a sense of permission to to really live into that newness as opposed to just maybe always being defined by where I came from before and how I relate to that space and all of that. So right now it's kind of a it's kind of exciting and weird and joyful and uh, just a lot of new life. That's amazing and so good to hear. And I even hear like one of the core tensions that I hear in the book and what you're saying where you're like, I, I used to associate with these things. Yeah. And it's actually really hard not to associate with those things anymore. And I think like, as I hear you describe that, you're describing that there are kind of like paths that people take when they hit disillusionment, when they yes. find dissonance with the things that they used to believe. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of those paths actually look like when people become disillusioned, not just with their own sense of like faith or their own, but like really what you're talking about is life. Because I even, as yeah. I hear you talk about like divorce and remarriage and what that means and like holiness traditions mm -hmm. and like all, like those sorts of things mean that the paths that we take have to vary from the ones that we were given. And so I'm yes. wondering if you could lay out what some of those paths are that you see see people taking as they hit that level of, a, of disillusionment. And then we can talk a little bit about why people hit those places. Uh, well, that's, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I think it, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, <laughs> maybe really broadly speaking, I think the path just looks a lot like agency because <laughs> I think, you know, so often we're, we're essentially handed a script uh, where people say, okay, here's, here are the rules of this, of this world, we internalize those things really deeply. And so I, th I think a lot of what it looks like is having to, having to walk far away enough to where we actually are able to figure out what we think and what we believe, um, which involves, uh, fundamentally, it's a, almost always gonna be an alienating journey because our communities give us our sense of identity. How do we know who we are except what, who people told me uh, told us who we are in relation to them. So when that constellation of relationship changes and a lot of those relationships don't exist anymore or don't exist in the same way, uh, it's deeply disorienting. So I think that road, you know, in my experience, and I think, I think this bears out for a lot of people that I know and love, really feels like a long season of chaos and am I really going to survive this? And even if you find yourself in a very different place and get into kind of F you burn it down mode, there's still this deep down, it's kind of like, 
yeah, I don't know if it's even okay for me to be doing any of this at all. Because that's so totally. in your body, you know? So <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I totally hear that. And I and I hear that path of agency as, as like a really gracious invitation. Because I think for many of us who have been disillusioned or have been deconstructing or decolonizing or whatever word you want to apply to the loss of a thing that formed you and movement into another thing, I think we get kind of like fundamentalist exvangelicalism. We yeah. get just like a total loss of everything, either like a burn it down or an ignore it completely, a compartmentalization of grief. And I think that the invitation to agency is this deeply uncomfortable in the middle space where we say, oh, maybe I actually get to have a say about what happens in my life. Yes. And as we've been talking about patriarchy this season specifically, one of the major tenets of patriarchy that I found to be the most stressful and frustrating and damaging has been the ways that patriarchal and white supremacist systems keep us from being able to make decisions about our own lives That's and right. make us abdicate responsibility or agency about who are who we should be and what it should look like to be us to other people outside of us and assume that we never have enough or that the proximity of the divine is never close enough to us right. to make a big enough difference without these kind of elders or mod like kind of you know moderates or uh, mediators in our own lives mm -hmm. and i and i've just been so frustrated by that and was so interested in the ways that you talked about that in your kind of exegesis of this story at the end of luke and so would you mind talking about the story that you center the book on a little bit and where you find that because i think that agency bit is so present in yeah. how you do that storytelling well it's this story has kind of become for me uh and i I mean, I feel like this to sound like hyperbole because it's funny. It's only like, I think maybe it's 13 verses in Luke's gospel. But it's wild for me just how much the story really contains of what I think is a really universal human story. This idea that for these two disciples who are devout Jews, they understand themselves to be part of a reform movement within Judaism. They're not thinking themselves as Christians, like whatever. And, uh, but who honor Jesus as Messiah. So... The death of Jesus for them means none of this has worked. And so my reading of it is that this idea that because this, this road to Emmaus, it's so unclear in the text why they're walking to Emmaus. Could their homes be there? Could Emmaus be en route to their homes? But the one thing that does seem clear to me is that uh, theologically and literarily, Jerusalem is very much home. This is the center of the universe. This is, you know, but now this place where the temple is and has been the source of, the, this has been our sacred space. This has been our safe space in that way. Now it's a crime scene because that's the place where Jesus has been killed. And so my reading of it is very much that as these disciples are walking away, that ostensibly they're walking away from God, uh, walking away from faith. Of course, for those of us who are familiar with the story, the, the conceit of the story and the humor of it really is that um, Jesus comes in the form of a stranger who walks alongside them while they are, again, ostensibly on the road away from God. Um, but where I love it, what I love about it in that kind of sense of agency is that, and I even, you know, nobody's pushed back in this way, but it's just, I feel like it's a, it's a disclaimer I, I really want to make. For me, it's not at all this idea, like, as if it's a critique of Judaism and like, oh, well, that didn't, like, Judaism didn't work. I don't think that's true at all. Because I think these stories are very much in our Hebrew Bible. I think the idea is very much that to get to any mature religion, mature way of just being human, almost always means that there's got to be a kind of walking away in order to kind of discern 
who you really are in relation yes. to this to this thing. So it's not like the, the like temple's bad, sacred space is bad, none of that's valuable. It's more like I think that path of disillusionment and despair is the only thing that can open us up uh, to have our own experience of, of, of God, of spirituality, of self, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yes, and that there's a real-time experience that they're having that matters. Like, regardless of whether I say, like, I love the church or, like, these Jewish folks love the temple and honor this experience, there will be natural disillusionment that happens in any part of their lives because that's healthy. That's right. And there will be times where we might just be like, man, fuck this. Like, why would would I want to do this? Why would I want to be a part of this? Or one of the things that I say very often about this kind of deconstruction movement is that it, it is often initiated when the promises that were given to us about what faith and faithfulness would mean don't yes, come true. That's right. And I think that those two people's story of walking on the road feels that way. Like Jesus is mm-hmm. promising this way of life, this kind of revolutionary experience. And when that promise doesn't come true, they are left with nothing because their whole life has been built around this idea that they were a part of a sacred community that was going to change the world. That's right. Which is the story of the Jewish people, right? This big, encompassing, like all-encompassing, yeah. broad story. But the moment of Jesus' death, it makes sense that that would be really disorienting yes. and traumatizing and really grief-stricken for them. Yes. And one of the things that I love that you say, it's something to the effect of like when you add one person's despair to another person's disillusionment, and you create an accidental church. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd love for you to talk about how you see that as they're walking along the road together, because I think that a lot of us experience some of this in what feels a lot like isolation, especially yeah. if we live in more small town or rural spaces. So can you talk a little bit about that experience that they have together? And how Jesus is meeting them in that space actually matters. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's. I think this kind of road is fundamentally an, an alienating one. Um, it's 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 going to feel lonely, and to me, it's part of the power of the story. It's that because all we really know about what's happening for them in the road, because it is only a few verses, is that apparently they're having a really authentic conversation about their grief. They're just sharing their sadness. So. I just, a couple years ago, I had this real uh, aha moment of like, even where, you know, where Jesus says, whenever two or three gather my name, that I'll be present with them. It's like, oh, that that's exactly what's happening here. They're just two people in a way that is always going to be sacred. I think when we break open the deepest parts of our soul, they're sharing trauma, they're sharing pain, uh, they're sharing all this hurt, and God walks alongside them in that. I did, like, for me, that just doesn't feel accidental at all it's it's the miracle really that um that i feel like we're seeing happen all the time is that what this this process of people who are coming from the margins of their own respective communities find each other sometimes they find each other in a digital space and suddenly you have a moment where you don't feel so alone anymore you actually feel seen and known on some level and all of a sudden wow there's a sacred thing that's happening here and it's a different, very different form than what we had before, but it, but it's, but it's really sacred. And that, so that for me is part of the invitation of this story: is that wherever you're able to share your grief with someone in a really vulnerable way, that there is the possibility of a new community that that can come out of that. Which is so challenging for those of us who grew up in kind of uh, conservative evangelical spaces. Because what that says is that sacredness is actually centered around personhood and vulnerability and connection and not around ideology. And I think for me, I grew up in a community 
where ideology was the make or break, like you were transformed by what you thought and what you believed and what you hoped for in the future. When hope is really never something that's actually about ideology, hope is always about yearning and right. depth and disenchantment and a hope that something, you know, like a, to use the word to define the word, a belief or even like kind of magnetic pull that something could be different or better. Yeah. And I don't think ideology really has ever done that for me. And so that's I think right. I have a hard time even in myself as I as I work through a lot of this theological stuff, separating the importance of this like kind of grief and mm -hmm. stuff from ideas because yeah. I'm like ideas actually don't save us. That's right. Relationships to other people and what you're mm -hmm. describing as the presence of God in the midst of that is what is transformational. And I think for me just to unlearn that like piece of Ideas are God, not God is God, is, yes. has been challenging. It's incredibly challenging, Brent, and, I, and it's my sense. And I say this, um, of course, with great tenderness, but I think that's exactly why those of us who come from any sort of fundamentalism, why we find it so hard to give up on fundamentalism no matter where else we go, because what gets what's in our bones is you have to believe the right 15 things. Well, now we have a different 15 things, but there's still this notion that if— uh, if you don't believe two of the 15 or you're, you're not thinking right about something in the community, then you're out, you're done, you don't belong, etc. So I think it's like it's, it's, it's just so interesting how that formation, I feel like, is kind of is so in our bodies that even when we try to go other places, we find ourselves really kind of operating out of that same that same structure. I, I think it's so hard to unlearn because nothing, yes. nothing that we experienced before uh, in, in a lot of those spaces prepared us to welcome the sacred in relationship and all oh, this is communal and because it's so like it's it's so up here that you know you, you can't just you just flip a switch and say like oh well now I'm in my body and now this is you know it's this is all about yeah. like genuine community or whatever like no that stuff is still like it's still in here. Well, it's really hard to be welcoming or even I'll use the word hospitable to those things because hospitality and policing never go together. Mm -hmm. And so much wow. of the foundation of fundamentalism for me is that white, so, and I think it's why white male Christians love fundamentalism is because it employs the tools of policing yes. to make sure that people stay in line and extricates that. And I think what happens is like uh, fundamentalist, like people who are deconstructing try to like extricate themselves from the problematic ideas, yeah. but still keep all of the policing yeah. and police mm -hmm. those 15 ideas that you're talking about. And so I think I've struggled a lot as I've been critiqued by people for my critique of white fundamental or like white, uh, sorry, white people who are doing deconstruction movements. But I just can't get away from the fact that it all still feels like just shit talking and policing. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not interested in doing that because the that bridge for me has and actually this actually came up for me in the january 6th hearing that just mm. happened around trump's attempts to pressure mike pence because what this mm. the committee did if people didn't listen to it or see it is that essentially the committee set up mike pence as this kind of hero figure who mm. who's like who started his day with prayer and he ended his day with prayer and a bible verse and so they were like and see because he did that he's good and it's like these like liberal mm. democrats who are like saying this thing to kind of heroize him for doing the bare minimum of protecting yeah. democracy. And that because they made his character seem so good, like the, the like the one right thing that he did, it somehow erased all of like the problematic stuff that he's voted for, endorsed, been behind for the last five mm -hmm. years. And so I had a really hard time with that because it just reeked of fundamentalist Christianity to me wow. where 
the ideas that you hold matter more than the embodied things that you do. And if you do the embodied thing right one time, it makes you like a superhero because yes. like your actions res- like are somehow consistent with your ideology. And so I felt really kind of, I don't use this word to describe myself very often, very triggered by that depiction of mm-hmm. him because I was like, oh, there we can't even do like the grief. He can't even, we can't do the grief or the pain yeah. or the disillusionment because he did like one right thing. Right. And I think so many of our churches and Christianity spaces get a lot of credit for doing the bare minimum because the fundamentalism both on the left and the right if we want to use that poll are so obnoxiously white and male that's right that's right oh i love the way you put and i'll tell you i'm literally i like made a note um i'm the the idea that shit talking and policing (laughs) is the through line (laughs) that just that just rings so true because i think uh and it's not like doing some kind of a very fine people on both sides thing. I think people are rightly, I think as this happened now, I think people are rightly starting to recognize that a lot of what is cast as an alternative to those things just really isn't because it's like the same fundamental form of spirituality, ideology, all of that is still intact. The basic structure is still there. You're just going to another end of the ideological continuum. So I think, I did, actually think that's really, that's really powerful, just this idea that, uh, you know, there are reasons why we can hear that kind of language and people, that, the January 6th thing, the, there's this other narrative that's being cast. It's like, yeah, no, that doesn't, that doesn't really feel right either. I think it's really important <laughs> to be able to say. Which is so hard. And I think the continuation of that maybe into the more personal that I hear you describing so pastorally in your book is just that many of us, because of those both political, social, and really Christian realities, is that we're taught to self-police as well. And that there's no way for us to actually experience the love and presence of God closely when we are constantly self-policing, because what we're really doing is just distancing ourselves from ourselves and assuming that if we kind of cover up the like things that we consider ugly or that our communities deem sinful or problematic, that we're going to somehow be better. Mm -hmm. And you use this, this um, phrase that is uh, kind of embedded in the text, which is basically that God is as, as Jesus is walking with them on the road, he's hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea? Because I think that, a lot of our policing of ourselves and yeah. the kind of paternalism that exists in a lot of our church structures and even our, as we're trying to to use, I'll use this word intentionally, reform those structures toward more just and yeah. marginalized centered beings. It just seems like that policing doesn't really go away. And so mm. I think it's important to me that people hear a little bit about that kind of idea of God hiding in plain sight and the ways mm. that those are not compatible. Well, I mean, uh, and Brett, if I could say this first, I, I love the, just your framework of talking about this in terms of self-policing because it's part of what made this book feel like a bit of a tightrope for me in the sense that okay I, I do feel like and want to bear witness to what has been my own experience of resurrection and how I understand the Jesus story now but the last thing I want to do is for it to feel like any version of um, okay no, you know, God haunts you, and it doesn't matter if you don't want to believe in God. It doesn't matter, like you don't let know, because that's that's the opposite of all this. I mean, I think the, the in terms of the hiding in plain sight, part of what's so wonderful for me, and this is just is continuing to kind of electrify my my brain in this moment, is the reason they're not that they, they don't recognize Jesus is that he's in a different form, right? It's like this idea like that the resurrection resurrection has come in a form that's so different from what they knew before that they don't yet recognize it. So I think like that's, um, that's part of the power for me of this, 
of this story is I think often the resurrection, the resurrected form is already around us in some way or another. It's already within us in all these ways, but we're still enough inside of the old structure and system that we're not able to acknowledge that yet. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Like, it's there. It's right there. It's just yeah. that we haven't been given the language. We haven't been, get, been given the, the tools, the resources, really, to be able to identify that when we see it. And that, for me, is totally. part of the power of the story. Totally. And, and the metaphor that I, that I think that comes to mind for that is when you learn a new word, you hear it everywhere. Or like mm. when you buy a new car, suddenly you see that everyone drives the car that you drove, even yes. though you weren't aware of that before. And I think that as we start to recognize Jesus in different forms, it becomes easier to recognize. But one of again, one of the things about fundamentalism that's so hard is it says that God can only be seen and viewed in this one way. Right. And it's really dead and hanging on a cross. Like yeah. that's the one way that Jesus is get that gets to be embodied. So a Jesus <laughs> who walks alongside people yeah. as they're in the midst of the lives that they're living, it does not it does not mesh with this eternally crucified Christ, even if we say we believe in the resurrection. Wow. And so I think if the church and Christians worship an eternally crucified Christ, of course, we're never going to aim toward new life. We're yeah. just going to constantly avoid death because much like a lynching tree, you see the warning of what happens when sin is near your life. And yes. so I think I'm just thinking in maybe in real time about this kind of eternally crucified Christ that exists mm. in a lot of fundamentalist spaces mm. and that this story of the road to Emmaus counters that narrative by saying not only is Jesus off this cross yeah. and resurrected that the form that he takes is so different from the thing that he looked like before that we don't even recognize it and that That's means right. that this Jesus can be found anywhere in ways that are much less violent and much yes. less like antagonistic and much yes. less troubling than the last way that you saw Jesus even if that image and that moment matters and i think mm -hmm. that for many of us that's one of the challenging things is that like the communities that we used to be in did nurture us in a lot of ways sure. and did shape us in a lot of sure. ways and did love us in a lot of ways. But just because that happened doesn't mean that we owe those communities allegiance in who we are becoming in the mm -hmm. future when that no longer serves us. And yeah. I think I, I say that with the risk of sounding like uh, I'm endorsing some kind of consumeristic expression mm. of Christianity, but I think people know me well enough to know I'm not sure. doing that. But I think it's rather to say that there's so much freedom to tell the truth about how we're experiencing the spaces that we're in and the the, the, rea the lived out reality of the theology that we've been told to believe. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so powerful, Brent. Well, because, and I mean, it's so much in what you said that I just, I mean, is um, kind of leaping in me because, well, for one, it, it, I find it actually really um, surprising that I still feel like uh, there's not a lot of permission that people feel like they have to be able to say that healing and harm happen in the same space. It's so mm -hmm. like all or nothing. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, th th there might have been genuine experiences of God, community, grace, or uh, maybe you went to AA of that church and got, so whatever it might be, whatever that was a gift, like those things are still present. And they're also like incredibly toxic things that happen and all that can be can be equally true. I I'm loving though what you're doing in terms of this thing about the eternally crucified Christ because, <laughs> I mean, it's like even now, I'm like, it's kind of, wow. So, you know, part of the surprise of the story is Jesus is in this celebratory moment and the joy of this face-to-face -face bread and wine. And like, you know, so, so then we have these experiences where we have new joy and there's experience and there's taste and like all of that. But when the grid that we've been given is all eternally crucified Christ, 
then that doesn't feel like a holy moment. It's like, oh, well, we're, well this, this might be fun. We're unwinding, but maybe I'm not able to, like, name. No, this is actually, this is a holy encounter. Yes. And that in that, like, everything, if, if we have that framework of eternally crucified Christ, everything has to be serious so that yes. you, like, honor or earn or make sense of that experience. And so the table actually doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think that for me, one of the major shifts I've had to make in my own theology, and I think the book of Luke has been so significant for me in that, is that the center of the Jesus story is actually not the cross. The center of the Jesus story is the table. Mm. And if the table is the center of the story, that fundamentally changes how we approach our relationship to other people, because we no longer have to be worried about the business of like soul saving or like rigorously searching people out, we can assume that God is already doing that work and that the invitation is actually to be at the table and to know that we can approach the table. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about table theology, because I know this is something that you're really passionate about and that I would love to have people hear a little bit more about, because I know that that shift has been super important for me. Brandy, the way that you just described that in your experience of Luke's gospel, I'm just finding that electrifying because... It's because I, I feel like this is the kind of stuff that happens. It's not that um, it's not that there's not a cross. It's not there's not a cross story that's here, but when you misplace the entire emphasis of the story, part of what I think put me on this journey early on, or I say that uh, maybe it was a precursor to it. One of the things I remember that first, like maybe before I really started to shift on like table theology, was simply finding it curious that in the Gospels it gives so much press to Jesus's own table practice. And I feel like, I'm like, well, I'm not hearing a lot of sermons about this, but I feel like it's everywhere I turn in the gospels. Why is that? And uh, now later what I've come to believe is that, and normally with things, you know, you feel like you need to give good footnotes and like whatever, but this is a place that for me at least, in my reading of Christian tradition, I feel like actually we start to get this wrong pretty early. The, the gospel is being written later than the epistles. Surely the idea is that the table practice of Jesus was supposed to inform the table practice of early Christians. And yet that move happens relatively early of this notion of, well, you know, like now we have these stories about Jesus and the table practice of Jesus, but our table is for people who have been through our class, our catechism, are been baptized like all the things when in reality it's like you know in in the gospels this is the center of everything the table is is is, is absolutely everything uh, cross is important but the cross serves a larger story of <laughs> you know there's a feast to which everybody is invited so like there's a place for suffering there, there's space to talk about that but it's uh, you know it's it's not everything so it's just it's just interesting how I've, i really feel like this uh, i've never thought about this before right now I feel like this is as significant of a shift as going from uh, the world is flat to the world is round. This is not like incremental. This is not like, you know, oh, well, this is a slightly different, uh, well, maybe we'll sprinkle a little grace into this. Now we've got a little grace talk. No, it's like this is a Copernican. This is like you're going from we saw the world this way, and now all of reality is different than the way that we, <laughs> than we once thought that it was. Absolutely. And I think that's demonstrated by the text itself in so many, like, we literally do not have enough time to describe how central this metaphor of table is. And really, when we talk about the table, we're just talking about the way that Jesus creates belonging by literally sitting with people at meals. Like, I think sometimes we're like, communion, intinction, you know, like we get into like the weeds of it. And I'm like, Mm. 
But with Jesus, he's literally doing a lot of walking and a lot of meals. And frankly, there is no cross without the table because it is at the table that people recognize that Jesus is dangerous because who we eat with and who we commune with forms the type of politics that we develop. And those type of politics are the things that that get Jesus killed. But what I love about the Jesus story, specifically in Luke and in John, is that there's kind of a... I'm going to call it a broader chiastic structure, but you have like, you have the Last Supper and then the death of Jesus and the resurrection. And then you have this Emmaus story where Jesus shows up to these two men and becomes known to them in a meal and then disappears. And that's a whole other thing. And then in John, you have the Last Supper, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then this kind of weird invitation for Peter to join him for this redemptive breakfast on the shore. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, the story isn't like, cross something cross it's meal cross meal yeah and if that's the case then jesus is modeling a a particular type of centrality of community and eating together that matters which i think we see in this really brilliant bridge from luke to acts where it Mm -hmm. says like they got together and one of the four things that the community did not forsake was eating together being together and letting that togetherness be the fundamental thing that shaped them not the ideologies that necessarily brought them or did not bring them to the table which for me is great and beautiful because it implies that as we're at the table we will change not Mm. we show up at the table with ideas and are unchanged as we're there yeah Uh, yeah i've been taking so many notes from because you see so many phrases where i'm like oh like meal cross meal like i'm thinking i'm i'll be taking that with me for a while because i think you know what you what you do so beautifully is it's this is being attentive to what the text is actually doing as opposed to just on a top level like reading the words which is what i feel like we're, we're so often taught to do we, we do get in the weeds of the words instead of seeing like okay structurally where is this story taking us and this idea about you know because I do uh, love and appreciate and honor uh, how in like higher liturgical spaces, I really appreciate the level of care and intentionality that's brought to the sacred meal, Eucharist, and all that. But where I feel like it just gets it just gets so off is then if you if we miss the fact that the idea is we're learning how to bring this kind of intention and care and gratitude to all meals like that's that's the whole idea it, consecrating a holy meal is valuable insofar that it helps us to recognize the ways that all meals are holy but if you turn it into like the holy meal is the point let's into getting people to that eucharist is the point well you know i mean that kind of misses everything it totally does and i think that even as i read the story like the the words of jesus's institution of communion where he says, like, this is my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. I think we often just only interpret the this as the, like, Mm. eating of a piece of bread instead of saying, no, this is actually about bodies being, like, our bodies being broken together. And I don't mean that in, like, I think that gets interpreted as, like, missionary martyrdom or, like, persecution. And I'm like, no, maybe it's the thing that we talked about at the top, like, this vulnerability and grief, this broken body Mm. that we hold together, that we, in empathy, are broken. And I'm not not a very empathetic person, so I'm learning this, but, Mm. like, we choose into our bodies being broken for one another and our lives being given up for one another. And I think we can only do that at the table. Like if Jesus had said, my body, this is my body broken for you and did not give them this at a meal. That has a really different interpretive lens and consequence than if he does that around a table with people. And so I think for me, it's been important to expand that kind of image of table and this like word this and going like the, the, the this that Jesus is talking about is a remembrance. Yes. But it's also like, do the thing that Jesus is doing. And if it, the, the Eucharist ends up being about remembering 
I think we have to ask, like, remember to what end? I don't think Jesus is just right. like, acknowledge me. Like, yes. like, that would not be a very Jewish way of thinking about remembrance. Like, That's remembering right. is always about, in the Jewish story, knowing who God has been to you yeah. and adapting your life to acknowledge the thing that God has intended for you. And so I think if that's the case with the communion meal, Mm. then we remember Jesus and then we open our lives to more people. We create more space and more grace and more belonging. And we remember that Judas was there and that Judas gets the same invitation that the rest of them do. And I think if we had that image, it would make the the consequences that we put on the cross really different. Mm. Mm. That's so good, Brandy. Well, and you know, and I love the... um, what you said about, because I, I feel like I'm seeing this everywhere right now. Anywhere that I used to read before, that this idea that, you know, you need to be a martyr or something, I, I, I just don't think any of that's true anymore. I, I, it's not that I don't believe in a version of, like, well, what Jesus says about taking up your cross. I just think, okay, look, your cross will find you. Everybody has a cross. So I think there's, like, a, a place of acceptance. Okay, this, this is my cross. Um, this is the thing that it almost never a thing that we have chosen. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to like, it's not about, well, I'll give up this or like whatever. No, everybody gets, everybody's going to get across that they need to carry. But if it becomes much more like that, it's like, okay, so now we, we see how these different experiences of brokenness can fit in this larger story of hospitality, gratitude, like all, all of the, all of these gifts then I just think that that just makes so many other things click for me um, in terms of how we're able to identify the sacred in our own lives. But when you see it, it's kind of like, okay, we're, we're, the goal is to become pious people who, who do really pain, because our lives aren't painful and hard enough. We have to find, we have to do extra painful, hard things so that God is going to somehow honor that sacrifice. Like, oh, that's what happens, I think, when the cross rather than table is at the center of the narrative. Which is so deeply frustrating because the I think the worldview that comes that is downstream of that is like, if you make yourself suffer enough, you won't suffer. Right. And I don't really get that idea. Yeah. Like that yeah. if I just make myself miserable enough in my day to day, then good things will happen to me. Yeah. And I think for many of us, that's why we dislike faith experiences sure. is because we did a bunch of shit that really hurt and was really that's terrible right. for us and was deeply unhelpful and that never followed through, yeah. and then we suffered too. That's right. And so I just That's am right. like, oh, there's some ways that I think that, um, oh, I say this really gentle. Christianity can feel a little um, useless to prevent suffering, but mm. we self-impose suffering. So I'm like, oh, Christians actually maybe suffer more, but it's kind of our own fault because of the mm. ideologies that we choose to engage with yeah. and to put onto other people. Because I think I'm feeling the distinct pain now of not just the things I've done to myself, mm-hmm. but to the direction pastorally that I've given to others in ways that I would never do right now. And so I I think I just, I feel conscious of all of those dynamics and the like, we make a lot of assumptions about what following Jesus or what we think following Jesus is going to do for us. We self-impose a lot of suffering and then we get like really upset when it doesn't prevent us from experiencing stuff that people who don't follow Jesus experience. That's right. Uh, Brandy, that's, that's, it's so powerful because it's a, it's it's interesting again how many things I feel like just this conversation I'm just like are just just blowing my own mind right now this because that notion of um, Christianity in the form that it's often given is teaching people that somehow they need extra suffering when it's like no 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 like no, there's enough 
there's more than enough suffering to go around. Now, sometimes we might be out of touch with it, and being in some of the spaces, certainly spaces I've been in, I feel like sometimes we're taught to detach and bury our heads in the sand and all those kind of things. But it's like if we're just dialed in to what's happening in the world and ourselves, like there's more than enough suffering uh, to, to go around. But I, I do think that's interesting, this idea that oftentimes it's like we're simply adding a whole bunch of anguish about the things that we're going to have to go through anyway. But now we have, to feel, we have to feel bad about it. We have to feel like our lives aren't working out. I must have not believed hard enough. Maybe I haven't suffered sufficiently, you know. And so then you put all that on top of the pain that you would just experience anyway. And that's, that, what a heavy burden to bear. Well, then you add like memory versus that. Like, I remember being like a fundamentalist kid, like, memorizing James and being like, you're going to face trials and temptations. And so then anything bad that happened in the church, any problem that like when my youth pastor had an affair and it collapsed the whole church, mm. our interpretation wasn't like this guy did a terrible thing necessarily. Our main interpretation was this toxic positivity that was like mm. God's testing us. And mm. I was just like, maybe this guy just ruined the church because he's selfish mm. and because he has unaddressed trauma and pain and because yeah. he's making terrible decisions. And so I think that there's no end to the suffering of a Christianity that insists suffering is redemptive. And yeah. I just think that my, the idea that like suffering is redemptive is the thing that keeps us in cycles mm. of abuse and pain. And even as I like saw the SBC report mm. come out, I was like, this, this is a primary group of people that taught us that suffering, like a mainstream group that taught yeah. us that suffering was going to be redemptive or that like closing off. Your, and I just like, was like, oh, well, then, wh where did that take you? Like mm -hmm. it took you to more suffering and more mm -hmm. cover up and more pain and more trauma. And I can't find an example of redemptive suffering. I, I can't Ooh. find one. You know, except for except for the cross, maybe, but that's like not a prescription. No, it's more like a, if if you follow this all the way through, death ultimately gives way to resurrection. So yeah, so like that. But you're like that's that's more like a that's a descriptive that's descriptive language of the pattern that that already exists. It's not like a a thing you can tell somebody to do. This is you know where this really lands for me right now, Brandy. Is that it's like if if you start with the premise of because then that's what happens. People, like, for example, how many times in my life did I hear uh, that verse? I believe it's Isaiah. Uh, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So what that turns into, something might sound like unfathomable cruelty to you. People being slow roasted uh, for eternity in hell might sound really cruel to you. But to God, it's just. To God, it's mercy. And it's like if you start with that kind of premise of, about God then you feel like you have to do that in your own life. Oh, well, this might look like uh, really awful, this might pain, trauma, but I'm going to tell myself, you know, that this is something other than what it is. And so in that way, you're taught not to listen to your body, not to listen to yourself, not to trust your own instincts. Well, yeah, and more often than not, that also results in other people. Like, I see this on the political right consistently, where it's like there's suffering, there's pain, but it's because this. And so yeah. we always have to assign fault to why people are poor, why people are yes. oppressed, why people are marginalized. When I'm like, y'all are doing that. Like, y'all yeah. are the ones who are marginalized and oppressing people. But there's like this higher, like, yeah. well, God is doing a thing. Or like, we're just aiming for holiness and these people are getting in the way of holiness. And mm -hmm. I think that all of the stuff that we're talking about frames humans as obstructions to wow. God's purposes being known in the world. Jeez. And if people are obstructions, then we're not people, we're objects that can be moved around and broken and bent and destroyed and disposed of. 
And mm. I see that so often in how many of us experience losing our faith communities. That yeah. when we just when we are when we appear as what people would see as broken mm. or we are disposed of. And so we are inherently dehumanized on the journey. And I think it's really hard to, when you are in the midst of present dehumanization because you, I don't know, changed your mind, to be able to hold on to any kind of semblance of relationship to Jesus who you were taught is going to eternally punish you for doing that thing. Like, it's so hard. And again, I think that that's part of the, and I know you think a lot about this too, but one of my major issues as I think about the prison industrial complex Mm. and our criminal injustice system is just that ideologies of hell serve white supremacy in almost every way because it assumes Mm. because it takes a christian ideology of hell and says that people are going to be eternally tormented somewhere else because of a bad thing they did Mm -hmm. and so we disappear people to hell so it makes so much sense to me that we would disappear people into prisons and into carceral systems because we've already been taught that that's something divine that god does as a punishment for wrongdoing and so i just think that kind of disposable nature of human life is far more present in a lot of our theological underpinnings than we might recognize. Mm. Ooh. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, Brandon, I think that has to be right. Well, because, like, you know, uh, especially since I've lived in Oklahoma, where you see how explicit the, the faith systems are that underwrite everything in our criminal justice system. And so you can't, I mean, you, the idea of trying to appeal uh, to, because the idea, if you're, if you're in prison, well, obviously you deserve it, because if anything bad happens to you, it's because you deserve it. I mean, that's just that's everything. If you're in a bad place, well, it's because, and, and goodness, and now not, I'm not trying to like riff in a, in a whole different direction, but it, when you come to see, again, the broader patterns at work in so many things, I mean, I've, um, and I actually said this with a lot of tenderness, understanding this kind of journey, but uh, a number of people I've known who've moved from one kind of spirituality and now are doing just some version of kind of a new agey, like blah, blah. It's part of what drives me crazy. It's like some of them have become more word of faith. If you're in poverty, it's because you have it clicked your heels together three times and wished hard enough. If there's any kind of suffering in your life, well, obviously, that's because you have it seized the power that you have in your mind to actualize this kind of thing. And, and, and it creates the same it creates the same kind of world. Any kind of suffering that's around me can't be my fault. It's their fault or they wouldn't be in this place to begin with. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it, oh it's, it's just so asinine, I think, because everything to me feels extreme. Yeah. Like where Jesus actually gives like a very approachable means of, of engaging with faith. That's right. Eating with other people, walking with other people, figuring out, testing out the way of Jesus and finding it to be true. Yeah. And we're like, well, if we just do an incantation well enough, it will work. Right. And if we just, you know, believe and memorize all of the parts of Tulip, we're going to be good. <laughs> and nothing about the Jesus story says that, because it seems yes. like Jesus does all of the right things and they kill him anyway. Yeah. And so I'm like, I just don't understand the... Well, maybe it's because we love certainty. Maybe I can sure. have more... I think I can be more compassionate and empathetic sure. than I am right now. I think a lot of us really love certainty, mm-hmm. and certainty is the most stable thing that many of us have. And it's what why I came into the church was because my family life was deeply unstable, mm-hmm. and the certainty of the church offered me something I didn't have at home, yeah. and that mattered a lot. So I think I'm I'm talking myself into compassion is basically what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so well, it's so good, and I feel like I keep having to do that too in terms of like, okay, yes, um, how on earth can be well. Well, of course, to, to a point, I get this because the need for certainty is so strong. Because then, you know, 
if, if we're able to uh, resolve that kind of ambiguity in our lives and everything fits a simple formula, I mean, I, of course I understand the, the, the appeal of that is that, uh, you know, of course I think inevitably where that always breaks is, as you gestured to earlier, at some point you just, if you live any amount of life at all, you find out it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It'd be great, quotation marks, if that were true. It's, it's not true. It doesn't bear out in any form. Uh, you, you, you're not less likely to get to have cancer, not less likely to get in a car accident, you're not less likely to, um, you know, have a relationship crumble because of, of some creed. It, it's just not, it's just not how it works. <laughs> it really isn't. And I think that part of why uh, some of us love certainty, especially leaders, I think this is a word to leaders maybe, is that certainty allows us to control people. Yeah that if certainty is at the center of your faith system, again, like we talked about before, someone always knows better than you do what you should do with your life. And leaders get the given authority by people to dictate what other people's lives should look like. And I have so many regrets from my time in campus ministry specifically, Mm. policing students' behavior, their time, Mm. their sexuality, their sexual practices, like all of those things were not frankly my business. And I was not doing them a holy service Mm. in taking away their ability to choose and make mistakes and encounter God in all of those things. Like it makes, it is the, it it creates the inherent idea that you will only experience the divine Mm. in good things, in your adherence to things. And I'm like, more often than not in scripture, than the scriptures, I think I see people experiencing the divine in like their total jackassery like i think about jacob like who is like Mm -hmm. having to own up to some stuff and he wrestles with god all night like i I think about like all these people whose low moments how they're faithless moments for Mm -hmm. where they're they want to give elijah wants to die he hates the ministry so bad like jonah is running away he hates the ministry so bad and the people that god is around and it is in those places that they have these divine encounters Mm -hmm. but i think that controlling leadership says that certainty will give you a divine encounter not any kind of (laughs) freedom or lack of paternalism and when we let go of that in the church i think it is very stressful like because many of us even if we don't believe it still do hold an idea Mm. that if we if we let the if we let the buck slip a little bit we're gonna just like descend ourselves into chaos when maybe we might actually just descend ourselves into community vulnerability and actual understanding of each other's lives (laughs) this is so awesome because i like uh even the characters you mentioned, it's like, what did any of these folks do except let life happen to them? They were, they were it wasn't some like, oh, well, they were doing the holy things. They let life happen kind of all the way down. Um, one of the things that's a bit of a through line in, in the book, which I also try to say kind of in a delicate way, because what I'm not turning it into is some other sort of weird charismatic you know, well, everybody needs a spiritual father, and if you don't have one like I can be one, or something, it's nothing like that. But because, of course, we all have this kind of authority in ourselves. But I do think, um, kind of in, be- in in between, part of what teaches us that we have that authority is when we have any kind of elders in our lives who give us a sense of permission. So that's one of the things I say a, a number of times, kind of in the book, is it's kind of like, okay, if you're looking for any kind of an elder or whatever, who in your life right now? is really giving you a sense of permission to go on the journey that you need. Because I feel like what happens is we end up looking for people who are going to tell us what to do. And there are plenty of folks out there who are happy to do that for us. But it's not actually what's, what's good for us. And I think, like, you know, over time you see, like, anybody who's ever, 
had a really healthy role in your life, a great therapist, friend, if they were a pastor, whatever, are actually the people who aren't dictating for us what the journey has to look like, but, but giving us a sense of, of, of grace to like, hey, you, you figure out what you need to go figure out. You explore what you need to explore without trying to, to dictate that for us somehow. Yeah, and, and I know in that, that like, I think, this is some, again, the Christian fear-mongering often says, like, well, if you start doing that, then everyone's just going to go off into, like, drugs and lawlessness and sex parties. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, the majority of people I know are not actually out, like, trying to make a bunch of, like, horribly destructive decisions. No. And if they do, like, we are good to say, like, hey, maybe this isn't, like, the best thing. Yeah. For, I, maybe this isn't, like, a healthy thing. Like, I can tell that you're not saying, like just descend into lawlessness. It sounds right. like what you're describing is like permission to be deeply curious about our own lives. Yes. Yes. And that most of us are not taught to be curious about our own lives. We're taught to be adherent to dogma and doctrine. Yes. And if our leaders become the people who are positioned above us, the thing mm -hmm. we're supposed to be curious about is how we can more creatively fall in line, That's right. which means that we then project that onto God and assume that mm. God's primary goal for us is to wow. adhere to what God says, but never be deeply curious about what God is doing presently. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's part of why uh, a lot of my evangelical background was so centered on the Bible as the only mm. word of God, because then you don't have to be curious about what God is doing. You only have to be curious about what you think that God has already said and fall in line with it. Yeah. And that kind of certainty and paternalism go hand in hand for me in my experience. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's like, it's, you know, even um, where you started that, kind of riff brand it's like because i do I've, i have the fear even when i say it always a little bit of kind of well i'm not not trying to advocate for like lawlessness and like whatever but you know the fact is and this because i feel like this is what happens humans we find if we try to live without guardrails that that does not work you you will find that out if you have no parameters in your life if there's no sense whatsoever of like any kind of boundaries or whatever that's not going to work so i think like just having that basic trust in uh in people's humanity in terms of like oh no like you can when you hit a wall here <laughs> then you'll know <laughs> but i think this idea that you know the alternative to th that kind of ordered life is going to be well inevitably then people are just going to be living wild like whatever well no, no like not, not really these are but i think that's the thing is that you often have to find these things out for yourself and if you don't, which is, I feel like, more like what my experience was, when you have, like, no sense of permission whatsoever, no sense of, like, whatever, is inevitably uh, you unintentionally are going to blow up your life in some form in midlife precisely because you never got to go on that kind of journey. So that's where I'm now. Yes. It's like I'm not trying to get people to be wild. It's more like, no, I, I would love the earlier you are in your journey that you have a sense of permission uh, to walk where you need to walk, the better off you're going to be. Because if you don't do that, one way or another, you know, subconsciously, those things are going to come up in ways that are going to be less healthy. So... Yes. I always tell people that your 20s are like, the for Christians in, in particular, your 20s are probably going to be the worst years of your life. Because mm. if you take any opportunity to explore yourself at all, what you're going to come in contact with is the just total dysfunction of your character. Yeah. And that God is not mad about that. Like yeah. you encountering the dysfunction of your character becomes a holy thing and is yes. a holy thing in and of itself. Yes. But I think what happens is that as we have, as we have doubts or critiques of quote unquote, holy state or sacred spaces, or, the, you know, I don't even have to put quotes around that. I think a lot mm. of those spaces are holy and sacred sure. to us. 
that when we turn our back on those things, the assumption is not that just that we're turning our back on structures and systems and people that formed us. It's that we're turning our back on holiness altogether yes. without recognizing that the presence, and I think this is the center of your book, is that like the presence of God, the holiness that is happening in sacred space as God is present with you matters a lot and is yeah. really real. And one of the quotes you say is, uh, I don't know if this is a direct quote, but it's like, God is right where you are and you are where you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that many of us are taught that God is always somewhere else That's rather right. than where we are. And if God is always somewhere else and that somewhere else is always within the walls of institutional power, yeah. then of course we're never going to feel settled in ourselves or in the little churches that are little sacred moments that we're creating That's along right. the way over meals and with friends because we've just been taught that holiness is always somewhere else that yeah. God is never satisfied, that God is always going to be distant and far away. And like, mm. yeah, you might believe the one thing that you have to believe, so God won't be far away from you. But what a small and low view of God, even if you were to believe those things. That's right. And, you know, and, and uh, Brandy, it's, it seems to me like the, by implication then that if you're, that if you live in that all the time, then it's impossible to escape the constant, since, since God's always somewhere else than where I am now, then that means I am endlessly, well, if I'd have made, if I'd have made this turn and not that, if I'd have made this decision and not that, if I just would have this, if I just would have that, because that's what happens when you don't have a sense of, like, you know, God being present where you are, is that you're, this constant, unhealthy kind of self-diagnosis of trying to figure out, well, how did I get here in this place, which is not mm. the holy place, which is not the place that I'm supposed yeah. to be, and I feel like that's, that's just deeply unhelpful for us. It totally is. Can you actually say a little bit more about that? Because I think that many of us might be in that place of yeah. trying to constantly analyze why we don't, especially for those of us who, like for me, I kind of, I grew up in like Baptist churches, but then ended up in like IHOP kind of spaces mm. and had all of these like really particular kind of Holy Spirit moments that mm. I don't feel in the same way right now. And I think for me, it's like, because my faith changed in my thirties and sure. like, I just, like I grew up. And so the way that I interacted with God then isn't how I interact now. But I think for a long time, as that was shifting, I was only able to interpret that shift as like, I'm doing something wrong or I'm not close enough. Or if I just like, you describe this experience in the book that I very much had where I'm like, you describe it, I think, referring to a basketball game. Like, if you just, mm. like, forget, forgiven of your sin between, like, the first and second quarter, you're going to yeah. make your free throws. Yeah, or, like, right. I'm like, if I just unearth the one way that I'm out of alignment with God, like, mm. the golden road is going to just, like, line up mm. and I'm going to have a straight shot to, like, all things good or lacking suffering in my life. And so I, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that concept because I think yeah. it's just, I think a lot of us are taught to analyze and critique and it's just very humanizing to hear that. Well, it's, it, it, it seems like it all starts from this basic premise that even if you're not some kind of hyper word of faither, uh, and, and like in our charismatic language, uh, is, is so prevalent most places, this idea that if things are going right, then it's because I did, I did the right thing and God's blessing me. And if things are going wrong, it's because uh, I, I missed it somewhere. And I think so long as we're still hanging on to that, um, then how do you not live in just constant anguish and turmoil? Because essentially, anything, you know, anything bad that happens is somehow your fault, uh, something that you should have been able to, you know. I just, I, but I just feel like that sort of, that kind of prosperity theology is weirdly prevalent in, I hate overgeneralizing, but it feels like, most North American Christian spaces, there's some version of that. It's like when things are going good, and so so then like you know, hey, so if I'm broke, well, I've, what, what what did I do wrong? What did like ah? Oh, and I just 
now that just makes me so that just makes me so sad because uh, I do think it's exactly the phenomenon that Jesus describes uh, with some of uh, you know always in the debates like with the scribes and Pharisees of his time. It's like all, you know all you're doing is loading people up with more burdens. All you're doing is taking people whose and I'm paraphrasing of course, but whose lives are already heavy and making them and making them harder. And it does make me sad. Both. Of, that I've experienced that, but as you said before, that I've also guided people into that in, in all these ways. Yeah, and that Jesus is like further critique in that, in his kind of woes that he's giving is that like, not only do you tie people up with burdens hard yes. to bear, you don't do anything to help them. And right. I think that for me, mm. there's so many ways that I've experienced that, like mm. where you you create a burden of holiness or piety that never is fulfilled in promise of what it's supposed to do. And then you're constantly critiqued for all of the ways that it doesn't work, even if you didn't right. do anything. And I think the, you know, like the natural consequence, and I don't want to beat a dead horse on it, but like, is that if when you do the right things, good things should happen to you, when you do the wrong things, bad things should and will happen to you yeah. because that is God's ordination to keep you in line, That's right. which allows us to support tough on crime policies yeah. that don't actually help any kind of rehabilitation yeah. of people and believe that people are human at all. We create monsters out of people and monsters out of ourselves That's and then right. wonder why we are supremely dissatisfied and yeah. sad and unable to be with ourselves all the time. Right. And it's part of why I actually have a lot of compassion for the epidemic of suicidality in white men mm. is that like the culture of white men in the church specifically says like, you're never going to be enough. Like, right. frankly, no one would say this exactly, but it's like, you're kind of a piece of shit, but because Jesus loves you, yeah. like you're worth something and that's worth like pursuing for the rest of mm -hmm. your life. And so I see like a broader kind of epidemic in that space of like the yeah. ideologies and Christian worldviews that create both oppressors out of white men, but mm -hmm. also also a lot of like victimization yeah. in that kind of never enoughness. I don't, I'm not like trying to be like, oh, poor white men, but I am no. like, there is a natural overflow of this kind of toxic theology, both in the oppression that white men kind of implement on other people and the deep pain that comes from the exact same dogma or the, the exact same ideologies. Yes. Yes. Well, and it, yeah, cause it's, it's so true. Cause you're, you're never going to be able to live up to those, those kinds of ideals. So even if you hold other people to them in a way that's unfair, or even if you're un unjust to others, I mean, well, who that's, how, it's never possible that you're going to be unjust to others and not unjust to yourself. That's just how it works. It's like that same measure. It's, I mean, it's what Jesus says just so brilliantly yeah. psychologically true. The same measure by which you judge is the measure by which yeah. you are judged. And so I think then what happens is a lot of folks who, yeah, carry themselves in a way where they're executing these kind of harsh judgments. Well, of course, they're laboring under those judgments for themselves yes. and find that they can't carry it. Yes, and that like in that same kind of teaching, Jesus is saying like, do to others as you would have them do to you. And yeah. I think in our Christianity, we read that as the uh, implicit or negative, where it's like, don't do bad shit to people because then bad things won't happen to you. Instead right. of being like, maybe this is actually a story about what Jesus is doing in that sermon, which is saying like, here's mm -hmm. how you proactively do good. Be a salt yes. of the earth. Be light of the world. Yes. Like if you proactively do unto others as you would have them do to you, that changes kind of the way that we are at the table together. It says, how would I want to be treated at this table? Mm. How would I want to show up? And how can I yes. create that space for others such that I would experience that space as well? Yeah. And so I think we create kind of these just worlds that we would want to see if we understand that kind of measured language that you're talking about to mm -hmm. be true and how we treat others as we would want to be treated, mm -hmm. which I think is hard when what we're modeled by a lot of our leadership is Anytime we turn away from the status quo as it is, right. 
there's all this rhetoric that gets applied to people who who turn their back to the systems that we're talking about or who yeah. take this walk down the Emmaus road or this road away from God, as you call it, which is like, oh, you just want to sin or like mm-hmm. you just want to interpret this the way you want to interpret it. Like, I know there's a lot of other rhetoric that people have had weaponized against them, yes. but I feel conscious of the ways that we don't just do harm to ourselves because we want to. Yeah. We do harm to ourselves because we've been taught that it's right and that we deserve it. That's right. Instead of that God is deeply present in those places of pain or discontent that we have. Yeah. That if we were to find that in community and honesty and vulnerability and storytelling, that, that might actually change us in a different way than just consistently demean us. Yeah, that's that's so good, Brandon. I think even I'm just so struck right now because I do feel like there's a lot of compassion in the way that you're the way that you're framing all this because and I really um again I hate to speak in over generalizations but I do think this is I think this is true like a hundred percent of the time uh when people are when we're participating in these kind of systems and structures like no one is happy nobody's joyful it, they're just you're just not you're just not it is it is utterly impossible it's not like it, it's really not even this kind of well you have joy you have joy because of you're exploiting other people with their pain. It's like, no, you're you're exploiting them and causing them pain, and then you're just unleashing all kinds of unnecessary pain into yourself because it's killing you too. Like it's not like yes. then you go home and like you have like easy laugh and you're able to be in your own skin and you know how to be in your relationships. No, it's like you're you're just you're locked in a prison here as much as anybody. So I think like in coming to see that, that like the folks that still are driving me bananas in this way, it's like, well, yeah, like they're also deeply repressed, uh, frustrated, uh, and on some part of them recognizes that their lives aren't working, but they don't have permission to say that. I, just, I think it's really helpful to be reminded of that sometimes. Yeah, and it just makes me think, like, I don't not actually met that many happy Christian leaders nope. who live in those ideologies. Nope. Maybe not even one. Yeah. Like, constant pressure constant divine burdening like we assume that god does the thing that jesus critiques spiritual leaders for which is like lays us with burdens too heavy to bear and then assumes that we do not need to let any help carrying them when jesus instead says like my yoke is easy my burden is like come and follow me and that's a really different it's a really different frame that's right and if that's the case i would love for you to describe a little bit about why you still do this then Mm, because i think that there's ways that we have validated this road to Emmaus that these men are walking, and there's so many reasons that a lot of us might be walking away from systems and structures, people and principles that once served us, yeah. loved us, shaped us, formed us, and that we can be grateful for, for the ways that they shaped us, and be critical of the ways that we've been harmed, oppressed, or pained. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering for you, and really for other folks who are on this journey, what has kept you engaged? What are you? What What principles or things center you that keep mm-hmm. you keep you going in this kind of what I think is constantly like a road away from God that leads us to God, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's such a great question, Brandy. I think part of like the thing that, that sort of is unearthed immediately because even um, th- there's a chapter in the book called it's good to be a fan where I talk about in the same way that Jesus comes alongside them, this whole idea of wise gods and what I've, uh, because you know whether or not you feel like you have this sudden experience of Jesus in this way, there is some there is some kind of holy stranger that in your life that if I think if we are rec- able to recognize those folks, they are. I think what's kept me going has been so not so much like principle or ideas, but that in ways that feel like whatever kind of divine grace, happy accidents, whatever, I keep 
meeting these extraordinary people that give me hope. And I can't deny the life that I feel coming from those folks. I can't, I, like, I can't deny that. I can't pretend that's not um, as powerful as it is. And whether that's um, something like in the book, talking about um, my friend Otis Moss III and Trinity United Church of Christ, or if it's, you know, in Oklahoma City, this little uh, community that we have that existed in small form before I got there, that Malika Cox and Cecil Jones Davis and Nicole had started. I mean, like, th these are just... Uh, we always talk about the sort of um, that was referred to the self-referentially as like the badass women of God that we have in this way. But like this very, they weren't trying to do anything powerful. But this new community that they created and the space they created is unbelievably rich. So I think what, you know what just keeps happening to me is I keep meeting these people and I can't deny their witness. And what makes me feel like I then have to keep doing what I'm doing in some form because more than well more times than I can count. I've been like, I don't want to do any version of this. I'd rather, I just want to kind of, kind of live my life. But what it feels more like is I can't not bear witness to the truth of, of these stories mm -hmm. that keep me yes. going. And, I'm, and I just think about, like, what if that is how we interpreted the image of God? Mm. Like, if we just saw in people an image that points us to a greater sense of God's love. Like, yes. that we, that as I experience love from other people, I have to assume God's love is deeper. Yeah. As I experience grace from other people that are amazing, I have to, ex I have to expect that that's better in God. If that's right. I look at Reverend Otis Moss III and I'm like, when I see resistance against foundational oppression and yeah. the desire for people to have a voice that I see in him and the legacy of his family, mm -hmm. I'm like, how much more so is God invested and how much is... Otis Moss Jr. a, or Otis Moss III, how much is he a image of God that's pointing me to an even more expansive picture of God? Like, right. that looking straight at an invisible God actually doesn't help us to know who God is more yes. deeply, yes. necessarily, and memorizing the words doesn't, but being loved well and finding places where we are, where our heart, in the language of the text, where our hearts burn, where we hear words mm -hmm. that matter to us, where we hear a song that strikes us. Like, when we, that's why I think the arts are so important is because the mm -hmm. arts connect us to expanding our image of God that we experience only yes. through other people. And I think that's why yes. that it, that kind of ideology that is central to so much of spoken Christian faith has mm. so much more depth than I think a lot of us are chosen. Because I think usually the image of God is just like, don't be shitty to other people because people are made in the image of God. And I'm like, that's yeah. just a unfortunately low bar. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Uh, Brandy, I was um, the few, well, just uh, earlier this week when I was, I was in Greencastle, Indiana, and we did that uh, with my good friends who have a uh, this great new whiskey spot there. We did a little bourbon tasting and reading. It was so much fun. But I was having a conversation with a friend of mine there, uh, Elise, and she's just so, it's wild, the, the things that she'll just kind of stumble into and say, like, what, what did you say? Like, I, I wish I was recording this. She was just very casually, something came about 1 Corinthians 13, and she just very casually drops, you know, I was just thinking today that, uh, every time I've ever read that thing about seeing through a glass darkly, I always think of it as like kind of seeing through this mirror and then like heaven, you know, like breakthrough to God and never really thought about the fact that, you know, what Paul says, but, but then we'll see face to face and that when I see face to face, and it just like, it, it, it just like, it, it just broke my brain. This idea that like, oh, um, we break into these heavenly moments just in this face to face, like, oh, yeah, that is the face of God in the face of yeah. another human being in a way that allows us to know love. And, and, yeah. and like, that, that's it. Like, that's the ball game. I just think that's so profound. 
Yeah, and what uh, pressure that takes off to be transcendent all the time, yes. to be inhuman in order to in- interact with God. Yes. Like, I think we have to, tr- we act like we have to become like demigods to interact with Jesus when I'm like, yeah. maybe Jesus is actually gathering a group of disciples so that they see the face of God in the diversity of who they are. Right. Maybe that matters to Jesus. And I think I... I think I think often, and I miss her so dearly. the The work of Rachel Held Evans, yeah. and just like her saying, like the the story of Jesus is the one I'm willing to be wrong about. Mm-hmm. And I think that as I think about these kind of this like image of God, this way of being together, this less strenuous faith, I'm like that's the faith that I saw her model for people yeah. as she made room and as she centered table. Yes. And so I want to honor her just because I think that as I consider a lot of these ideas i'm like man i saw this from rachel long before i knew it in other ways because she so deeply saw the image of god in people and i watched it like flood in her and watch her fall more in love with god as she fell more in love with people and opened up and so i think that like the the gospel of rachel held evans is that the image of god being found in other people yes is what makes you fall more in love with God. And I love that so deeply. Mm. And I just, that, like, as we talk, she comes to mind for me as she does often. Mm. Well, you know, she, that's, there's a, I love that even you taking it there because she's so significant in the book. And especially like the last few chapters talking a lot explicitly about Rachel. And I, cause I, I do think there's a way that she did that. That was so, and you know, this wasn't the kind of language she would use to self describe, but that was it, just such a prophetic impulse in her. And she did it so naturally, not, which was to say, I, I think it never, it always came easy, but she did it so naturally, it was who she was. And I think that's why I felt like, I don't know, just memories of Rachel and thinking about her life, her witness, really hung with me even in writing a lot of this. Because I, you know, I think it's not just more like, here's a, a good person who happened to die young or something. It's like, no, this was a very... This was a way of spirituality that Rachel modeled in herself. And I think there's a reason why we feel her absence in that way, too, because these weren't just ideas. It was a, it was a way, just the same way, like Jesus is an idea. Jesus is the way. It doesn't the way, the truth, and the life. There was a way in Rachel that I think a lot of us saw that brought a lot, like a lot of healing. Yeah. Miss her work and her personhood. And I've, I think I often still am like, man, Rachel would have the right words for this moment. And I've, I've never felt that about anyone else. Yeah. And so I just, yeah, I'm glad we can honor her in this. Um, but for folks, I think pastorally, you're, you know, you've been, I, I knew your work when you were doing sermons at Renovatus mm. that I was downloading onto my iPod shuffle or whatever when I was in college because you had to like, it would take like forever to download those stupid podcasts <laughs> off of like a old ass laptop in a dorm room, you know, and I just... I love that you've been doing this work for a long time and that you really are a pastor and that so much of your work, even before you were explicitly being like, hey, we're doing something different, was letting the text breathe, Mm. um, which is something I'm learning from my pastor right Mm. now. It's like how to let the text breathe and have life outside of the constraints that we put in it or on it. And I've seen you do that for a long time. And so I'm wondering even just pastorally for folks who are on this road away from God, this road away from systems and structures and things that the promises just haven't been fulfilled. Is there anything, that, any word that you would give to folks who are on that journey right now, yeah, as we get ready to close? Well, um, I so appreciate you saying that, Brother. That's so humbling and so kind because, you know, it does, it, and it is weird because I feel like in this way, it's something I talk about a lot in the book towards the end, this idea of looking at your life a second time from this point of view of resurrection because that's what happens to them. It's like, it, it's not that, 
something else changes. It's just that there's a moment of recognition to see Jesus walking with them all this way. So I appreciate that gift of even, you know, sort of that perspective on my life and work of, or where things can feel like zigzag. It's like, oh, no, I think this is, there, maybe there is a sense of trajectory or where that God's been taking me. And I think that's, it's why I so, um, well, I want to give permission to people to be wherever they need to be on the road. It's why I, 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 I don't want to see anybody just kind of collapse into to despair because I think the way, the way the road works is if, if we walk it far enough, which sometimes does mean having to go deeper into the pain, into the trauma, you know, it's just like, you know, no one's ever had a good therapist to be like, you know what, that's, that's kind of negative. Let's just gloss over that. We, you, you, need more, you need to think more positively. Let's move on to something else. Like, it's always going to be like, no, let's like, let's sit with that. And, and maybe you can't sit with it for too long, but let's, for as long as you can, let's go a little bit deeper. But I just think like if, we, if we're willing to go deeper into the sources of our pain, disillusionment, grief, whatever, inevitably, I really do believe it leads to some kind of new life on the other side. And I, but, but, the, but it's so discouraging. And it's especially discouraging when we have people around us who are saying, you're on the wrong path. And they see it as this, you know, our whole lives are like some kind of a failure because we're not existing within those structures the way that we used to. I, it, I just think for a lot of people, understandably, it's just, it becomes so hard to just see that road all the way through because it doesn't feel like it's leading to resurrection. Right now, it just feels like it's leading nowhere. And, and yeah. it's, so I just find myself wanting to say to people so much like right now like hey no no this actually is this actually is going somewhere and the fact that you don't know necessarily where it's going doesn't mean that this isn't the right path it doesn't mean this is not where you're supposed to be walking the fact that it might seem like in this uh, moment that your life is not working out doesn't mean that you're not on a path that is where you need to be and that actually will eventually yield to to some kind of resurrection yes as though God's will for you is to be anything other than human. Yes. Yes. Like, and I think some maybe people need to hear that kind of what you're what you're saying, like in principle is like God's will for you is not linear. Right. That God's will for you is not set. Yes. That God's will for you is not just like happening without your consent or without yeah. your permission or without your participation or without your choice. Yeah. And I think that some of what I'm hearing you invite people to is yeah, readjust. I know you wouldn't use that. I don't think you'd probably use that word God's will very often, but I think there's something mm-hmm. about like the specifics of it that feel really redemptive to that notion yes. for me that like, yes. if you are made in the image of God and God is present with you in all of the places that you're walking, even if God is hidden in plain sight, then yeah. God's will is to be with you. Yes, yes. In the, in the journey. Or even something, because this, this is, uh, like how profound is it if, if, if we feel like a sense of permission that God's will actually is for us to choose and that God mm. is more like, you know, it's like, because I, that was the, I talked about this early on, but I, this really this is just continuing to unfold for me in all these ways that are just kind of shocking. This kind of that I still kind of always default back to God. What do you want? And I do believe. I mean, and this is true. I think anybody who does any kind of art knows this. There's always surrender is always a thing. Yes, we have to surrender to something larger. There is a kind of like yielding to something beyond ourselves to be sure. But I feel like consistently over time, it's like I keep kind of like, but God, what do you want for my life? And I feel like all I get back is some like, what do you want? I want you to decide what you want. Yes. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> yes. It's the phrase that Jesus uses himself. What do you want me to do for you? That's right. Like, 
And it's so strange that that's like Jesus' first healing encounter. Mm. And that we so are, we're like, well, the person with leprosy just like ran away and did the thing Jesus didn't say to do. And I'm like, I think the most profound part of that story is not actually the healing itself. It's that Jesus models that his version of Godship is choice, yes. is agency, Ooh. is showing up to his own story and saying even what might be obvious. Yeah. Like Jesus says, Jesus gives that guy an option to not state the obvious yeah. and to have other desires in him. And to be in and of himself different than what might be being assumed of what he might want, yes. which I think is so cool because a lot of us are not given choice, but we're we're not given choice. And what we're told, like if we're queer, or if we're disabled, or if we're you know too black or whatever, is that who we are is the problem, yeah. and or our choices are the problem. And there's no hope in any of that. That's and I think right. if we discard some of those notions. We can just say the things I choose and the things I don't choose are all a part of the story of what God is doing in my yes. life. And that matters. And that doesn't require some dramatic change necessarily, mm-hmm. but rather it requires presence to see how those parts of me interact with who God is and the people around me. And I think that's a much more beautiful and welcoming and hospitable and table-like story. Yes, yes. And, and uh, the way you put the brand in terms of the things that we have chosen, things we haven't chosen, I mean, like, because, and this may be, and, and I know, like, for, well, it doesn't even that dis- need that disclaimer. Obviously, for a lot of people that we've known or spaces we come from, this would be so unacceptable. But part of so much of, for me, what I understand about being a Christian now and why I would still aspire to be a Christian is I do really believe that in some way, grace is, that love is writing a different story of our lives, a better story of our lives than the one that I would choose to tell about myself. And I think that, that for mm-hmm. me is a very powerful idea that I don't have to like, in a plotted way, figure out how to make all this go, that I can trust that just as I'm living my life, doing the best that I can, learning and growing, yes, of course, in humility, tenderness, like all the things, but that somehow there, that there's a God that's larger, that's turning that into a story that's, that's good and being able to mm-hmm. trust that I need God for that. I need to not be, that's where I do want to yield, is I need to not bear the responsibility (laughs) of having to make all this work intellectually, figure it out. Like, I feel like that's beyond me. But the idea that there's a God who's able to do that, like that for me is very very beautiful. That's so good. And I think it's such a better picture and more accurate and more Jesus-like picture of God that isn't just like believe the right thing it's like follow into the beautiful thing that's happening already yeah. and it's not like it doesn't require like all this like weird because i think again i'm white like male space it's, like everything's innovation and everything's like original all the time and like always <laughs> progress and bigger and more yes. and whatever and i'm like maybe it's just discovery and participation and trust maybe it's i don't know jesus tells parables about yeah. seeds that fall and the day and night passes and the person doesn't know how but it grows there's yes. some strategy but it's just like a shit ton of mystery mm. to let the seed that is falling in our lives the word of god the, the like love of god mysteriously grow in places that we didn't know Ooh. it could and mm. we may not know until there's time like i just did some preaching on the on the parable of the sower mm. and just hit it so differently than i ever have before just Looking at those soils is not about the soils, but about the seed that is so good that when one seed hits, when one word of God hits good soil, it's enough to provide for all of the ones that don't. And so I think there's freedom for many of us to let God be good Mm. and to not worry about exactly how that happens and to let time tell. Because with those four soils, you don't know what's bearing good fruit until time passes. And so I think we can rest some of our urgency or our need to just create. Because again, I think this is part of the new fundamentalism that we create is that 
the sense of urgency to be right or good right. or the best doesn't go away. Yeah. And so I just think there's so much less striving than that. Mm. And I appreciate so much that you offer that in the book. Cause I think I experienced the book as a very gentle, compassionate, pastoral acknowledgement of what a lot of people are experiencing without trying to have a lot of answers, but rather yeah. saying, this is what we are experiencing and this is who God is. And you get to discover along the way how you will experience that. And I think that's really beautiful. Uh, and so I would love if you could tell people a little bit about the book um, and if there's anything else you'd like to plug, because I feel mm. conscious I've taken so much of your time. Oh, no, no, this is, this conversation is <laughs> amazing. I would do this for days. I feel like, this is like, this is so good for my soul. I'm like, this is, well, and uh, I tell you, Brandy, I just so, um, even when you were talking about the way you've been preaching about the parable of the sower and, and just the fact that you're, even the podcast, you know, being reclaiming my theology, it's kind of, I, I just love this notion that I feel like you embody so naturally because like I did, the book felt like it needed to be tender. It felt like it needed to be gentle. Um, I think life has pushed me deeper into that kind of tenderness and, and gentleness. But the thing that I do actually get really fiery about, and you know, I, you never want to like to kind of turn that into, uh, in an unhelpful direction. But I think, like, for me, it's like, yes, there's there's room to, you know, walk away from Jesus, whatever you need to do with faith. Like, of course, that's okay. But I just so deeply believe the stuff that we're talking about today. No, th this actually is Jesus. This actually is the Jesus story. This actually is the Jesus message. We're not making this up. And I do think there's something powerful about being able to say, like, yeah, no, you actually don't. You're not, you're not going to take the Bible out of my hands and you're not you're not going to take the tradition away. You don't get to take these things that are sacred uh, to to us and just turn it into whatever you want to. There is a sense of like contending for. Oh no, like this is this is. I think this is the Jesus story. I think this is the path. This is what's supposed to look like. So I don't know. I just think there's something that is something that brings out a lot of fight in me these days mm -hmm. of kind of like not letting folks like just run off and be able to define that this is what this that somehow this is what all this is. Um, totally. But yeah, I think I lost uh, altogether, Brad. Me too, because I was so lo lo just loved what you were saying. The uh, uh, you know, in terms of the, the book. But yeah, uh, Road Away from God, and yeah, it has been out since just Tuesday of last week. So it, it, it also is kind of a, a tender thing. And that's part of what's been fun about like some of these conversations is that uh, even my through a series of events, my endorsers didn't even have a long time to to read it. So it was wild. By the time the book came out, it's kind of like, oh, I think about ten people have read this manuscript. I really don't know. <laughs> like, is this okay? Like, is this very, feels very vulnerable in that way to kind of throw it out in the world. So the way that uh, even, well, and honestly, I, and I feel because like, I did want to, I felt like this would be worth saying at some point. Um, I, I have really struggled a lot with, I've come so far on this journey myself, and I do believe like authentically in terms of the kind of voices that we need right now. Um, it pushed me pretty far in terms of the sense of like, okay, as a, this six foot five like white guy, do I do I really have anything that I need to say? Do I, do I have anything that I really want to say at all? Because like, uh, and if it, and if I am going to say anything, if it doesn't really reflect the wisdom of the traditions that are now shaping me and honor like the, the, you know those voices, then I then like I sure as hell don't want to be out doing something <laughs> like this. But there really has been a lot of like like discernment of going into this of like you know do i do i even need to do this and ultimately come to place like yeah yeah i do think so because i think telling my story you know kind of my way doesn't have to like does it diminish anybody else's but i feel like that even that wrestling though was kind of like good for me of kind of like yeah, yeah. I, I don't i don't want to just 
be another person who comes out of this space it feels like you know oh yeah i just need to be talking about something you know that it pushed yeah. me into a very different space in all this yeah. creatively which I, I appreciate the nuance there in that because i think one of the things you talk about in this is that like storytelling and truth telling matter mm. but i think storytelling and truth telling matter in so far as they're contextually self-aware yes. and so i hear Ooh. you being contextually self-aware because I think a lot of pastors might actually have true or real things to say but they're kind of assholes right. and I'm like it doesn't I don't I it doesn't matter if you know everything about the Bible yeah. but you're an asshole to the people in your life That's like it right. just straight up doesn't That's right. and so I appreciate that you are framing a contextual self-awareness mm. that allows everyone's story regardless of social position to matter and to have space in so far as they are responsible for the ways in which they hold those stories mm. and those truths yeah yeah. So I think that matters a lot. Yes. And friend, we could do this all day. I know we could. We probably someday someday we're gonna get in the same room again For and sure. have a meal and do this whole thing. But I so appreciate your time and this book and I think it's gonna be such a gift to mm. readers. Uh, uh, listeners and readers um, listeners we're going to do some giveaways of the book in the next couple of weeks you can look out for that but you can find the book wherever books are sold there's Kindle version regular version audiobook I'm sure will be out in the relatively near future mm. as what happens with books um, yes, and yes. so please grab the book if you're just looking for a little bit of a balm in this time mm. um, something to humanize you and your experience I think this book does that really well and you know I don't lie to you because I have no reason to no. and there's a shit ton of bad books out there and I have no problem saying that <laughs> so thank you so much thank you so for much. your time thank you so much Randy and I just I, I just have to say again I mean this conversation today it's like you just the way that you do theological work and just life it's it's so it, there's just such an intuitive mystical like way like I'm I really, I'm so grateful to have this conversation. I literally, I have like a page full of like notes I was taking mm -hmm. on phrase and stuff because it's like this really feeds my soul in this time of like where there's a lot of output. It's like, oh, I feel, I feel so poured mm -hmm. into from being able to have this conversation today. So thank you for the gift of, of that. Of course. I'm so, I'm so honored by your words and to get to share some space with you today. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sticking with us for another season of Reclaiming My Theology. I, as always, am abundantly grateful for and to everyone who supports us on Patreon, who listens, who shares the podcast, who shares their stories with us, and who change their lives and systems and structures they're a part of because of it. I love you all and what we get to do together, and we're so excited to be back in the fall. We appreciate you all so much, so let's just keep trying over this time to do a little bit better together. 